Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today after a two-week hiatus that I actually didn't mean to take. And so I want to share a little bit of that story here in the intro. This episode is going to be devoted to a talk to a presentation that I gave in Fredericksburg, Texas at the What Good Shall I Do conference that was put on by the incredible folks at Force of Nature Meets. I put a lot of preparation into this talk. I actually spent two months doing a lot of reading and pulling on a lot of different threads as I began to build this this piece of work. And I found myself deeply enjoying the process. I loved the writing aspect and the research aspect and getting a chance to really synthesize so much of what I have had the pleasure of learning over the last year, over the last decade, over the last lifetime throughout the different iterations that my work has taken as first a a student and then as a a butcher and somebody who was incredibly curious about soil, incredibly curious about human nutrition and into becoming a nutritionist and then into becoming a farmer and the host of this podcast where I have had the pleasure of having all these beautiful guests whose work has deeply inspired me. And for the last year, I've really dedicated myself to sharing the work and the stories of others in this medium that is the podcast. And in it, I have found so much purpose in my life and so much passion for sharing these stories. And all of that passion is more alive than ever. However, now it has been joined by my passion to also share some of my own work and to begin to deepen my practice of writing and sharing some of my ideas here with you on the podcast itself. I think this became especially clear to me as I came home from Texas and felt a sense of deflation and a sense of sort of sadness. And I think that that was many factorial. I think part of it was that I became deeply in love with the people and the landscape in Texas and and just really felt a resounding sense of home. And really enjoyed my time there. But I think that another component was almost in a way that a marathoner completes a race and all of this training that they have done culminates in this in this relatively short amount of time. And then what comes next? As I had prepared this talk for months preceding it and then to get up and to give it, and to put it out into the world, I had that same sense of, oh, well, gosh, I've really enjoyed this process. What is going to come next? At the same time, I came home and I realized that I have been putting 15, 20, 25, 30 hours of work into the podcast each week and that this is on top of my other roles as the owner of a butcher shop, Western Daughters in Denver, and as a farmer and that I am wholly devoted to this and I also need to take a really big leap, which is what I'm about to do right now. And this is actually a very hard leap for me to take. I have set up a couple of ways for you to support the podcast. This is only if you want to support the podcast. There is no obligation. There is only just this ask that if you want to be in reciprocity with this organism I feel like I have built. And to support that work, I would like to ask for that support. It is not easy for me to do this. And I have, I have questioned in many ways what it means to ask for support. Um, because I really just want to make this beautiful thing and put it out into the world and have it 
delight your ears and hopefully transform a little bit of your life in the myriad of ways it has transformed mine. But I am also a human living here at this moment on earth and have to feed myself and my family. So it is with that that I am inviting you, if it feels right for you, to be in reciprocity with me to support the podcast. There are three separate ways to do that. The first one is my Substack, which is slow going, but I am slowly getting it up and running and there will be more of that there. The second is in Patreon, where you can support it with a monthly recurring gift. And I am also going to leave a link to my PayPal if you just want to give a one-time tip. It is my hope that when you hear these words, you will know that they come from, oh, I mean, it, it is very hard for me to receive. And I think that we must ask for what we need. And I need this at this time. As the podcast grows, it is my hope that I can bring in more sponsorships that will help support this work, but it might take a minute for it to get there. And with that being said, I would like to create a space for those who want to support to support. Thank you. This was incredibly awkward for me. (laughs) But I think that it also tugs at some of the themes of this talk, which is what it is to be in relationship. This work has given me so much joy that I am not going to stop it regardless, but that support would help me to continue to do this work to the fullest of my abilities and would support my truly egregious habit of reading three books a week. Um, Okay, next little bit. I want to talk about this talk itself. The first thing I want to say is a huge thank you to Taylor and Katie at Rome Ranch and Force of Nature Meets, to Sarah Creech, who is an absolute goddess in this space. What her and Katie and also Taylor and Robbie have put together with the What Good Shall I Do conference is truly stunning. And it was such an incredible offer for them to invite somebody who has never given a public talk out and to have me open up the conference. What I experienced at the What Good Shall I Do conference was a deep sense of grounding and a reinvigoration of what it means to explore the relationships within farming, ranching, eating, cooking communities, and to really dig back in to creating the best models of connection for everything therein. This was reiterated to me with some beautiful talks by Anne Bickley, who's been a guest on this podcast, by Judy Schwartz, whose work has inspired me over the years and is going to be a future guest on the podcast. And many of the other people that that graced that stage. I had the pleasure of sitting on a panel about death with Monsal Denton, which was an awesome opportunity. And to really see that it is the relationships that we are building, especially those that get us out of our isolated little sections and silos that can really begin to move the dial for so many of us in agriculture. The theme of this talk is what it means to be in relationship, and it is an imagining of all of the relationships that create us and create our environment throughout the earth and perhaps throughout the cosmos. And one thing that I struggled with as I was building the talk was the the desire for everyone to walk away with a feeling of deep interconnectedness. And the reality that no matter how I talked about that interconnectedness, it was from the outside as an observer. And I wish I had caught this little bit that I'm about to read you before I had done the talk, because it really reconciled the idea of how we participate 
in our environments and that that changes them. And so there is a bit of a paradox baked in here that you can't talk about something outside of yourself that you are inside of, which is a paradox. So let's talk a little bit about that. I picked up for an interview that I am actually conducting uh, tomorrow um, with with a very exciting guest, I picked up uh, Dr. Capra's Tao of Physics. Those of you that have listened to the podcast for a long time know that Dr. Capra's systems view of life crops up very often because I think it's such an incredible work in explaining this sort of systems view or interconnections, interpenetrations of life that are so beautiful. And the Tao of Physics describes some of the relationships between Eastern mysticism and quantum mechanics in physics, which you don't need to understand to read the book, um, or else I'd be in trouble. And I came back to Heisenberg often. I often come back to Werner Heisenberg, who is one of the fathers of, of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. And he said at one point that we cannot speak of nature without also speaking of ourselves. And I think that this gets at the root of that paradox that I was struggling with of how can I talk about something where it's going to come off as if it's outside me when I am an interconnected part. And Within that, I'm going to read you a little quote. Nothing is more important about the quantum principle than this, that it destroys the concept of the world as sitting out there with the observer safely separated from it by a 20 centimeter slab of plate glass. Even to observe so minuscule an object as an electron, he must shatter the glass. He must reach in. He must install his chosen measuring equipment. It is up to him to decide whether he shall measure position or momentum. To install the equipment to measure the one prevents and excludes his installing the equipment to measure the other. Moreover, the measurement changes the state of the electron. The universe will never be afterward be the same. To describe what has happened, one has to cross out that old word observer and put in its place the new word participator. In some strange sense, the universe is a participatory universe. To deepen this, you know, this this does come back to the idea of Werner Heisenberg's we cannot speak of nature without also speaking of ourselves. And I think within that, you know, there's a lot that's describing what it means to measure something and and to look at something very small like an electron, but I think that this applies to the whole of observing the natural world and our process in it, that this is participatory and that this is an act between an infinite amount of intertwined beings. And so I just wanted to resolve that. If that resolved that, I think I might have added more confusion. But it's really without further ado that I want to bring you this talk. It was such an honor to create this piece and to imagine it. And I think that it has given me a new lease on what it might mean to write and to work towards new goals of putting my work out into the world. Thank you for sitting through this intro and for listening to my my ask of you to be in reciprocity with me if you feel called to do so. And just the deepest thank yous from the bottom of my heart for everyone at force of nature who put on the conference and invited me out there and the deep sense of camaraderie i found both with the people there and the ecology it was a really beautiful time to be with the moon and the armadillos and the vultures and the bison and the bats and the wild garlic and the stunning rocks and the ants especially, and to get to know some of these humans and to build those relationships. More and more, I am seeing that the way forward is more in-person connectivity, that this can create an incredible 
stage for us to be seen and felt as human beings and experienced ourselves. And so I look forward to more of that in the future too. Here it is. Here's my big talk. So Kate Cavanaugh is an entrepreneur, but um, more than anything, she is just a beautiful mind and a beautiful heart. Um, just for some background on her, she is um, the co-founder and co-owner of Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver. So she's an incredible badass is really what I'm getting at. Like she is such a badass. You guys, she's going to conduct a demo here on a bison butchery um, around 11. So you're going to be able to witness her, her badass in action, but also her heart here in just a second when she jumps on the stage. Um, Kate has an incredible podcast. It's called Mind, Body, and Soil. You guys should all check it out. And also have her on your podcast if y'all are podcasters. She, you're going to die when you hear her talk. She's just, she has the biggest heart that you will ever feel, meet, hear, all the things. Um, there's nobody quite like her. So without further ado, Kate, come and blow us, oh, out of the water. And I'm like, and she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Hey everyone, it is such a pleasure to be here with you today. I have been waiting for this moment for many months. Um, I have a little chat, a little storytelling session today to share with you about the way that matter transforms throughout nature and the way that we're connected. It's a lot of what Taylor talked about, and we didn't plan that, but I think it's going to dovetail really nicely. I actually want to do something a little bit unconventional at the outset, and I want to say a couple of thank yous. As I've been thinking about the way that matter transforms throughout these cycles of the Earth, I've realized that it also transforms in the ideas that we share with one another. And I think you all will get a real good chance to experience that this, this weekend. And so with that being said, I realized that so much of my speech was built into other parts of conversations that I get the pleasure of having on my podcast. And so I wanted to just give a little thank you at the outset to my friend Molly Haviland that helped me really shape the soil parts of this, this, this talk. I want to thank my friend James Connolly, who shares a lot of books with me, and a lot of them made their way into this speech. I want to thank my husband, who could probably give this talk better than I could at this point. Uh, and I really want to thank Taylor and Katie and the Force of Nature team for taking a chance and letting me share some of these ideas with you here today. I want to start by kind of piggybacking off of something Taylor said about hope. In the lead up to this conference, I've been thinking so much about hope and what it means to me. And one of the things I realized is that it does get hard. What Taylor said, those moments when it feels like it's insurmountable and it's hopeless, those are really tough moments. And I think it's something that we all experience in today's climate. But I want to take a moment because I really believe that we can feel the ripeness and the fecundity of hope the most at the beginning of something. Whether it's at the beginning of a relationship, or the beginning of a new job, or the beginning of a speech that you're really hoping is going to go well. Maybe it's at the beginning of a conference where you feel really hopeful about the connections that you're going to make, and the ideas that you're going to get to share in the relationships that you're going to build. And so with that, I just want to do a little exercise with y'all and see if we can tap into what hope feels like in our bodies. So if you want to take a moment and get comfortable, set your feet on the ground, maybe take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions, and you can just think about the answers and feel into your body. What does hope feel like in your body? Where does hope live in your body? 
Does it have a texture? Is there a color associated with hope? If hope had a sound, what sound would hope make? What does hope taste like? Once you have that feeling, I want you to really hold on to it. I want you to create a really palpable memory of what this hope feels like so that you can access it later on when you need it, when it feels harder than it does right now. I know that for me, hope has this buoyancy and this lightness in my body. It lives just below my sternum and it fills up like a balloon that could almost lift me up off my feet. It has a sort of pearly color and I think it smells like the grass after a storm. Probably tastes a little bit like spring. And I think that this buoyant and light nature of hope is so important in a world that feels so heavy. Every time we open up the headlines of the news or we doom scroll through our phones, there is the weightiness and the heaviness of the world. And I think that there's a lot of fear there too. And one of the things that I've thought about with fear is that I think it really disconnects us. When we get into that, when we get into that sympathetic response, we want to run. We want to numb and we want to freeze. And we become disconnected from our bodies. We become disconnected from one another. And I think that these little pieces of disconnection, as I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast, I think that they're like little fractures that have happened over time. Where we became disconnected from ourselves, and from the interconnected web of life that we are so much a part of. Oftentimes when we talk about nature or we talk about the environment, it's as if it is something out there, not something in here that we belong to and are an interconnected part of that we are in co-creation with, as Taylor said. And I think that there's some historical context for these disconnections. I think these little fractures happen probably at the dawn of agriculture some 10 to 14,000 years ago when we leave our space as hunters and gatherers that are moving with the land, procuring our food and kindling and moving with the cycles of the earth. I think that another really big disconnection happens around the time of Rene Descartes when he separates mind and matter and chooses quantification over qualification, taking a mechanistic worldview, where we forget that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I think we see yet another little fracture when we move from our rural communities into more urban environments around 150 years ago. I think it happens again after World War II with the rise of convenience foods and the beginning of the processed foods that we see so much of today. Maybe again when Ansel Keys releases his seven countries study and takes fat and meat and vilifies them, foods that we evolved to eat. I think that there is another disconnection when under Nixon, the Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butt, says get big or get out, and we see the consolidation of farms across America. And I think these little disconnections are happening with a greater and greater frequency. But I think that the antidote is for us to begin to connect again, to connect with ourselves, to connect back to nature, and to really dive into this feeling of being the observer and the witness, the steward and the co-creator. I was talking to my friend Anthony Gustin a couple of days ago. I don't know if he's out there. He'd probably be heckling me if he were. There we go. <laughs> and he said something that really stuck with me. He said that as we go from observing this interconnected web of life that we are a part of, 
into trying to describe it with language, something is lost. And something is lost yet again when we go from language to numbers. And I would argue that we lose even more when we go from numbers to the ones and zeros that make up our digital environment. <clears throat> and so I want to put us in a space of getting back to that observation. And I think that this can be done through feeling, through feeling what a interconnected part of life we are in reciprocity and in service to this life and the feeling of aliveness. Feeling is something that you can't find in a study. You cannot find it on Google Scholar. But when we connect back to this space with our five senses, when we return to the space where we see the beauty that surrounds us and we taste our food and we hear the wind through the trees and we smell the greenness of spring and we touch all of this beauty around us, that we can really begin to come home, to be welcomed back, like Taylor said, to Mother Nature. And so with that, I wanna take y'all on a little journey of a seed as it makes its way through Texas Hill Country. I want you to get comfortable. If you wanna put your feet on the ground, I would tell you to kick off your shoes, but I'm worried you get bit by fire ants. But like Katie said, you did sign a waiver. Whatever it means for you to just kick back and relax and enjoy this. I got my notes up here. I wanna start with this little reminder that all of the elements that make, us, that make us up, that make plants up, that make the animals that we see in this space up, burst forth from the singularity of the Big Bang. And those predominant elements here on Earth are hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, what I forget? Nitrogen, hydrogen, one of them. And there are others too, phosphate, zinc, manganese, and they're all cycling in and out of one another throughout deep time. So I wanna start on a journey with the seed of a little blue stem plant here in Texas Hill Country. Before I put together this story, I asked Taylor and Katie if there was a species of grass that that really felt like a keystone to them. And they mentioned little blue stem. And I loved that because I'm from Colorado. And we have big blue stem in Colorado. So I felt like I already had a little bit of a relationship with this plant. Now I want to imagine that we find this little blue stem, which you can actually probably find out there in the field. It's just, just got these beautiful broad leaves and you can see it. They're tipped in this deep, dark purple. But I want to imagine that it's not April in this situation, that we find our little blue stem in the heat of August, right as these seeds have ripened and are ready to let go of everything they have ever known. And I want to zoom in on a single seed, at least what we perceive as this one little being. But inside that seed is an entire microbiome that it is inherited from its parent plant that has shifted epigenetically over the course of many decades to be perfectly suited to this place right here in Texas Hill Country. But on the outside of this seed in its philosphere is yet another microbiome but this microbiome has been gifted to this seed by every relationship it has had until this point. Every bee, every butterfly, every fly, every breath that a bison exhaled on this plant has given this little seed some of their microbes. And so the seed that we perceive as one is really many and it is carrying with it every relationship that it has ever had. And I want to imagine for a minute that in this hot August Texas wind, 
the seed gets picked up and begins to float on the wind until it comes to land on the back of a bison. And here, this seed finds a whole new ecosystem. On the back of this bison, on its skin and its fur, is its microbiome, populated by bacteria, and fungi, yeasts. But there are other members of this ecosystem, too. There are small spiders and other seeds, pollen, soil from where the bison has been wallowing. And this bison, this ecosystem engineer, carries the seed on its back for a number of days. Until one day, overcome by the hot Texas heat, this bison bends over and wallows in the earth. And as it rolls around in the dirt, this seed gets pressed back into the soil. And as the bison stands, its perfect shovel-like hooves press this seed even deeper into the soil. And as the herd begins to move under the stewardship of the amazing people here at Rome Ranch, the entire herd presses the seed just a little bit deeper. And they provide urine and manure that nourish this seed, bringing microbes and nitrogen and phosphorus back to the soil. Things that we consider waste, but are a beautiful part of the cycles of Mother Nature. And this seed, in these moments, is thrust into the darkness. And I want to pause here and I want to talk a little bit about darkness. I've had the pleasure of being here on the ranch for a couple of days, and a couple days back, Katie and I went to the caves that are on this property. And I was really struck that as I inched deeper and deeper into this cave, that I had this sudden feeling of fear. Fear of that darkness, fear of the unknown, fear of that abyss. And I was really struck that we think about darkness as something to fear when really I think that darkness is one of the preconditions for life. One might imagine that before this singularity where all matter burst forth, all the matter that makes up our bodies and the bodies of plants here on Earth, that there was only darkness. Inside of our mother's wombs, there was darkness too before we emerged through her vaginal canal bathed in microbes into the light. And so as this seed is pushed into the darkness and it orients itself according to the gravity of the earth, I think that something magical happens. I think it's really interesting that as humans, we've spent all of this time looking up at the cosmos and imagining the life that might exist there. When right below our feet and right below the crust of the earth exists something that is absolutely teeming with life, in one teaspoon of soil, you can find one billion microorganisms. A single shovelful contains miles of mycorrhizal fungi. 10 billion viruses in a single teaspoon of soil. And this is the new ecosystem that our little seed finds itself in. It finds itself in the soil food web. And amongst these bacteria and viruses and microbes, there are also microarthropods and microanimals, nematodes, all manner of little beings. And it is in this perfect ecosystem that this seed will begin to soften its coat and that roots will begin to emerge from the seed. There's this idea that the roots of plants might have evolved from fungal symbionts that merged with a rootless green algae many billions of years ago. And so I want this to stand as your first reminder 
that everything happens in relationship. As these roots emerge from the seed, it reaches down into the soil to seek nutrients. And it is caught and held in that space by this network of beings that are creating and pulling nutrients out of the soil. Rocks that are really just stardust compressed throughout deep time are packed full of the minerals and ingredients for life. These miles of mycorrhizal fungi secrete organic acids that liberate these minerals from the soil. But they're not the only ones. Some of the work time does too by weathering rocks down and increasing their surface area, making them small enough that earthworms can grind them leaving minerals and many other incredible nutrients in their castings. Even some plants bring up these ingredients for life. If you go out there, you'll find a thistle in its perfect fuchsia bloom. And thistles have an amazing knack for digging a really deep taproot where they can access minerals inside of the soil that have gone deeper than the members of the soil food web can reach. They draw these minerals up into their plant tissues. And then as they dry and decay and go back into the soil, those minerals become a part of the soil food web once again. My friend Molly Haviland calls this living a dying process. As these roots begin to reach this soil food web and receive these minerals, and the many nutrients from the soil, it is then that our little seed can begin to grow its aerial parts. They begin to unfurl for the seed, reaching the top crust of the soil, until in a moment, they break through into the light, just like we might have once done as we passed through our mothers. And in this moment, these little plants reach the light and they form a relationship with the sun. In endosymbiotic theory, there is this idea that the chloroplast inside of all of the plants that we see around us is really just an ancient cyanobacteria that was engulfed by a single-celled organism. And inside this chloroplast, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is made. It's part of what fuels the plant's energy as it pulls carbon out of the air and sequesters it inside the soil, as it splits nitrogen atoms, as it confers these carbohydrates and sugars to the soil in exchange for nutrients. And again, another reminder that everything happens in relationship. Even the trees that we see out here on the pasture are a part of this relationship as they go through their own cycles of taking water and breaking it. And as they transpire this water, with it goes bacteria. And it goes into the atmosphere. And it is a part of seeding clouds. 30,000 different bacteria that are a part of seeding clouds that increase the potential for water to fall in this arid climate because everything is happening in relationship. And so I want to imagine with all of this nutrition and all of this light and all of these incredible microbes that our little blue stem really begins to thrive. It digs its roots deep into the Texas Hill Country earth and some time passes. Maybe we find our little blue stem again right here in April. I want to imagine yet again that this herd of bison returns to the pasture where this little blue stem resides. And maybe that same bison that carried that little blue stem seed on its back finds the little blue stem and takes a bite. Now, a couple of different things are happening at once in this moment. First, this little plant is strengthening its roots. 
The stress that this bison has put on it has encouraged it to grow its roots deeper, to become more resilient in this space. And because it is stewarded by such incredible people, they'll make sure that that bison doesn't get too many bites. The other thing that's happening is the plant tissue is now in the mouth of this incredible ecosystem engineer that perfectly co-evolved with this grassland. And in the saliva of the bison, the plant materials, the fibers that we call cellulose begin to break down. And as it mechanically breaks down some of those fibers, it swallows it and into the rumen it goes. I want to take a minute to talk about ruminants, which are my favorite, my favorite thing here on Earth. Ruminants like bison and cattle and goats and deer. They have this incredible four-chambered stomach called the rumen. We're monogastric animals, you and me. So we only have one stomach. We're not very good at digesting dense plant matter that's filled with cellulose like grass. But inside of this rumen, and it is one of the most beautiful things, as a butcher, one of my favorite things to show people are the chambers of this incredible fermentation vat. There's one that looks exactly like a 70s shag carpet, one with perfect honeycomb, one that has leaves almost like a book folded in on themselves. And inside of this rumen are 150 billion microorganisms per single teaspoon of rumen fluid. And amongst these microorganisms are fungi that release the enzyme cellulase that allows them to break down cellulose from plant tissues. Because everything is happening in relationship. And as this bison takes in these nutrients from this plant, minerals that are just stardust compressed through deep time, along with phytochemicals, which are healthy for both the soil and this animal, something that Dr. Stefan Van Vliet calls the dark matter of nutrition. These are things like terpenes and carotenoids and tocopherols, things that we don't even understand how they are affecting our body. And as these go into the bison, they go through the rumen and into the small intestine where they pass a one-cell wall-thick membrane and become a part of the bison's process here in Texas Hill Country. Part of what's fueling this life and giving energy to this bison. Maybe they make their way into a cell and become part of the mitochondria, which is just an ancient bacteria engulfed by a single-celled organism many, many billions of years ago. Just like that chloroplast, those mitochondria are responsible for producing adenosine triphosphate. Just like the plant. Because we're all mirrors and fractals of one another, everything occurring in relationship. And with this energy and this nutrition, the bison begins to wander through Texas hill country. Bison and grasslands co-evolved with one another, which means that they depend on one another and the relationship that they have formed. The grasses and this deep soil food web network bring nutrition that the bison needs to wander the earth, and the bison brings its shovel-like hooves, its manure, its urine to the grasslands. They belong together. And so this bison, fueled by all this energy, wanders through Texas Hill Country. And it wanders for a time. And then one day, I want to imagine that a shot rings out and this bison drops. Stewards of the land come and they cut the jugulars of the bison, and its blood runs back into the soil, bringing with it nitrogen. And I want to pause here, and I want to talk a little bit about death. Death is something that has been 
taken from us. It has been hidden and tucked away between the four walls of hospice and hospitals. No longer care for and undertake our dead. We also no longer hunt for our food. We no longer have the opportunities to bear witness to this incredibly important part of the cycle of life. And it is that, right? Life into death, into decay, and into rebirth. If we were to leave this bison out on the grasslands, its body would become fuel for everything else. Nitrogen in its blood, potassium in its tissues, phosphorus in its bones. This is the NPK that we consider synthetic fertilizers that we apply to land. And it could never perfectly mimic the way that nature does this. And we have gone to incredible lengths to try to mimic this process. In the 1820s in England, they used to bring home the bones of soldiers to grind and put on their wheat fields so they could make bread because they had lost so much fertility. I cannot fathom the amount of disconnection that that would take. But if left there, that bison makes what I call the transition of one into many. We perceive this bison as one being, but as I've already said, there are 150 billion microorganisms per teaspoon of rumen fluid. And now that this bison no longer has the autopoetic processes that create a boundary, the cells that were once nourished, that were once nourishing this bison, begin to be nourished in turn by this bison's body. They go rogue and they begin to metabolize and consume this matter. I had the pleasure of being a part of one of the bison harvests here at Rome Ranch last December, and it was one of the greatest honors of my life. And I want to follow this bison as if that were to happen, as if we were to pull it in and as if it were to become part of the nourishment of the people in this ecosystem, of the stewards of this land. And what would happen is that this bison would be taken in and hung and a butcher, maybe like me, would open it up and spill that beautiful rumen back into the soil. And maybe let's imagine for a moment that we find the organs of this animal. It's heart, liver, kidneys, spleen. About two million years ago, humans began hunting. Before that, we had really just been scavengers getting lean muscle meat. But in this moment that we start hunting, our very physiology begins to change because we get access to these super nutrient-dense organ meats. We use fire to begin to break them down and make this nutrition more bioavailable. And again, in relationship with these technologies, what it is to be human changes a little bit. It changes what we have become. All the generations that came before us, 40,000 generations of hunters came before you. And we are that moment where at an epigenetic level, the choices that we make will shift generations to come, just like eating organ meat changed the way that we are sitting here right now. Our food is a vehicle for this elegant conversation that we are constantly having with our environment. Between environment and biology, food brings information, nutrients, phytochemical richness, and it changes us at a biological level. When I think about everyone that came before, I am always reminded that you were once the, an egg in the ovary of your mother in your grandmother's womb. And I wonder what that might mean for the generations that will come next. I think a lot about the relationship that we have with our food as intimacy 
One of my favorite definitions of intimacy is a union of particles. And under that definition, I don't think that any act could be quite as intimate as the act of eating, except for maybe conception and pregnancy. Because in this moment that we intake our food, like so much of the beautiful food that we're going to get to eat here today, and we get, begin to break it down in our mouths, we actually breach this boundary that we think of as self as we take in other. We think of our digestive tract as inside of our bodies, but in all technicality, it's actually outside of your body. Continuous with your skin from your mouth to your anus, your digestive tract is the boundary that separates what is coming in. And I think that this moment where we breach this boundary, where we take these bites of food and we chew our food and they're digested in our stomachs, and they go to our intestines where they diffuse across a one cell wall thick membrane and become us. That stardust compressed through deep time, liberated from mycorrhizal fungi, accumulated in plant tissues in relationship with the sun into animal tissues, becomes a part of us. And I think that this makes the idea of what is self and what is other really hard to tease apart. Because we are constantly transforming into one another. Our food is becoming a part of ourselves, a part of our lineage, a part of the generations that will come. And so this is really a paradox, and it's even more of a paradox when you consider the fact that for every one of your human cells, you have nine cells that are a member of your microbiome. You are, in fact, only 10% human. Sometimes I wonder if our bodies are just a tour bus for our microbes to see the world. And I think that we are countries for these members of our microbiome from the arid expanses of our forearms to the jungles of our groins and armpits, the canyons of the webbing of our fingers and toes. And they have colonized us in ways that change who we are fundamentally. Inside of your gut, where 95% of your serotonin is produced, your microbes are making a gut-brain axis. She calls into question, who's doing the thinking for us? Where is the seat of self that we are so sure of? These microbes communicate with your vagus nerve to activate parasympathetic responses. They are truly incredible. So again, I kind of ask this question, what is self and what is other if with each exhale that we take, we are surrendering a part of ourselves to the surrounding environment, that carbon dioxide that we exhale will become a part of plant tissues that will then release oxygen that will be a part of what fuels us. Every bite a chance to become, and the actions that we take from that fuel, a chance to surrender and to be in service. These are expansions and contractions of self. 20,000 breaths a day, a chance to let go and a chance to become that mirror the expansions and contractions that the universe is taking over epics mirror the expansion and contractions of the tides that are pulled by the moon that mirror the cycle of a woman. Everything happening in relationship. I think we stand now on the precipice of this sixth mass extinction event. And I think we can all feel the weight of that, the unknown of that, the abyss of that.
It's a beautiful philosopher named Andreas Weber, and he talks about the sixth mass extinction event and that one of the greatest losses that we experience is actually the loss to know ourselves through the amazing biodiversity that's present here on Earth. And I love this because so much of our language is built around what we see, right? When we talk about being green, when we talk about being in bloom, when we talk about a freeze, the only way we can know ourselves that we can build this diaphanous idea of self is in relationship with everything else. When we touch something, we can only know the boundary of that touch by knowing that there is something on the other side that is feeling our touch. Our experience of sight is only in so much as the beauty of everything that we get to take in. I think that we know that we are real because we can hear the wind rustling through the leaves. Our relationships are proof to ourselves that we exist as a part of this interconnected web of life. And so as we stand to lose so much of that life, I think that there is grief here. And sometimes I think that that grief is a lot of that unnamed emotion that we are all feeling, but we can't quite put our finger on. In many ways, because like death, grief is something that we have cast aside. Because we don't want to feel it. Like fear, we want to disconnect from it. But I really believe that grief is the perigee to the apogee of joy as we go through these elliptical life cycles. We need to feel this grief in relationship with one another in order to feel the joy of connection. I think that in this life, it is a great risk to love, to love one another, to put ourselves out there, to love the biodiversity before us. But if we can come out of our silos and out of isolation, to be in service, to be in relationship, I really think that that is what begins to heal these fractures that we have experienced over time. That we can heal as we come back together, both with ourselves, that is not really even ourselves, with one another, in co-creation with this earth, I want to return for a moment to this idea of the little blue stem plan. Because I think the What Good Shall I Do conference is the fertile ground in which we are growing. And I think we are growing things like hope, things like connection. And as we have these seeds of hope, these ideas that we will receive here, these relationships that we will make here, there is this chance that we will disperse them back into our environments, back into our homes. Rumi has this saying that you are not a drop in the ocean, but an ocean in a drop. And I think with that, I want to remind you of these cycles. Stardust compressed through deep time, liberated from the soil by rocks and the soil food web. Formed in relationship with plant roots and plant tissues. Becoming an animal. Becoming you and whatever that self might be. And to remind you that you are not a being in the universe, but the universe in a being. 
And so I hope that this gives you a little bit of a foundation to go forth into some of the amazing talks that we're going to hear. I want to remind you that I am only scratching the surface of all of these relationships. I really do believe that there is an entire dark matter of relationships we could never know or understand, and a felt sense of this space that exists beyond our five senses. And I truly believe that this gives you hope, that the idea that everything happens in relationship gives you hope. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to be out there butchering a bison in just a little bit. Um, I cannot wait to be in relationship and connection with each and every one of you over this amazing weekend.